Samuel. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 24, beginning at verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 24, beginning at verse 1. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all of Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way, and a cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day that the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unannounced and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Back when I was in high school, there was a classmate of mine who had a reputation of being able to get under people's skin. And the story I'm about to tell you will probably help you understand why. We had a class together, his last period of the day, and he decided to bring some homemade hot salsa for people to try. Uh, he said he had, he had actually grown the hot peppers in his own garden, and he was passing out little tastes for people to try, and it was really spicy. And he got to me, and I said, you know what, I really don't want to try any. I've got track practice after, I don't want my stomach to hurt. But he wouldn't take no for an answer. And I turned around and faced the other direction. And when I turned back, he had decided to put that hot salsa on his fingers. And I believe he was trying to get it into my mouth, but he missed my lips. And instead, he got his hot salsa into my eyes. Now, if there's anything spicier than something spicy in your mouth... It is on your eyeballs. And I learned that the hard way when I was sent to the nurse's office and they showed me that fancy contraption they usually put in chemistry labs where you can flush out your eyes. I think it actually hurt more than the salsa did. But it was quite the situation. And I got back to class and everybody in class, they all felt bad for me and they all felt like I should get back at this kid for what he had done. And so they actually literally started to chant, fight, 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 fight. And they wanted me to clock him in the nose. Now, I want to I ask you, what do you think I should have done? Before I tell you what I did, what should I have done in this situation? This kid was, was dead wrong. He did the wrong thing. And most people would probably say that I had every right to nail him, to get revenge. And some of you want me to say that that's what I did, and I know you want me to say that because I want to say that. I want to be able to tell you that I did that. And he fell down, and the rest of our days going to school together, he avoided me in every hall because he was terrified of me. If you know me, you know this is probably not how the story actually went. And it's not. 
I want to ask you a question. What if there's another option in situations like this? What if there's another option where you've been wronged, no question. We're not talking about the story last week of Martha and Mary where, where it's two right answers, just one is better than the other one. What about the situations where you're in conflict and this other person in your life has intentionally harmed you? Maybe they're even somebody who knows and loves you and you want to get even. Now, revenge is an option, and that desire is deep inside of all of us. But there's another option as well, and that's the option that I want to talk about this morning. That's the option of faith. The question that we're going to ask is, can we apply our faith when a loved one betrays us? When a boss takes advantage of us? When somebody intentionally harms us? When a kid puts hot salsa in your eyes? Can we apply faith? In those moments, and I believe that we can. We're going to see that here in what is our second week in our series on conflict. Uh, the title is Dealing with Conflict When Everyone Seems Ready to Explode. And we're going to learn from an example of a conflict between two people where clearly one of them is trying to get at the other, and one is right. And one is wrong. We're jumping into the Old Testament in our reading today. It's in the first half of the Bible, in 1 Samuel 24. And it's the story of David and Saul. Now, to give you a little bit of context, this is the history of God's nation, Israel. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know the progression, right? You know that there's a covenant between God and Abraham and that his ancestors would grow into a mighty nation. And you've got his son Isaac and then Jacob and then eventually Joseph. And then you know the story of the slavery, right, of Israel, these descendants in Egypt and Moses and let my people go. And we're past all of that at this point in 1 Samuel, and Israel has even made it through the desert and are somewhat settled in the place that God has promised them, the promised land. But the problem is they have not followed all of God's commands. They have not done everything that God told them to do, and it leads to some problems, which is the same for us in our lives. When we don't follow God's plan for us, we run into barriers as well. And one of the significant barriers that they're facing, the most significant barrier in this particular moment, is an enemy nation around them known as the Philistines. And the Philistines are huge, like physically huge. If you remember the story of David and Goliath, uh, Goliath was a Philistine, and the Bible is very explicit in describing just how big Goliath was. He was almost 10 feet tall. Uh, his armor weighed 125 pounds. The spear that he carried was probably about 15 pounds, the iron point on the top of it itself. This guy was huge. And David, on the other side, was scrawny. He was so small that he couldn't even wear the armor that was given to him to wear when he went to fight the mighty Goliath, And I think the whole thing is told to us in such detail to show us just how all of Israel felt in the shadow of a nation enemy known as the Philistines. Goliath and his people, Philistines, they were, they were enemy number one. And everyone around them, like David, felt scrawny. And one of the ways that they tried to overcome their enemies was to call a king. 
And their first king in their history was a man by the name of Saul. Now, before Saul, they followed God directly through prophets and judges. And they wanted a person like the nations around them. They wanted a king that would lead them to mighty victory and revenge against their enemies that had done wrong things to them. And, and the truth is we want the same thing from the people in authority over us. We, we may not have a king in the United States of America, but when you vote for a president, think for a second what you're looking for. What is the most important characteristic in a commander-in-chief? For most people, they would say that it's someone that will give them the impression that he or she has the power it takes to lead us to a place of safety and power. I don't care what political party you find yourself in, we all want that in our leaders. And so that's why they called King Saul. That's what they wanted King Saul to do for them. And he wasn't a terrible king at the beginning, but just like his people, he slowly but surely began to go in the wrong direction. In a sense, he, he lost his faith in God. And the problem was that as he lost his faith in God, he began to live out that lack of faith and his conflict with others. Now, it's going to be important for us to remember the definition of faith. This is a, a verse that I've encouraged us to, to memorize, Hebrews 11.1, 1, and I want you to say it with me out loud, okay? Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. Even though I'm, I'm, I'm coming to you in technology, I didn't hear you loud enough. So let's try that once more. Faith is confidence in what we hope for. And assurance about what we do not see. That was better. Now Israel needed a king. And they needed a king probably now more than what felt like ever in their short history. And they needed a king that was willing not just to step out in power, but even more importantly, to step out in faith. And trust that God would be with them to fight their battles alongside them and ultimately to fight their battles for them. Reminds me of, of my wife, Alyssa. She's a, a registered nurse, and um, for eight years she served as an operating room nurse. And she would comment often just how confident and dominant uh, surgeons tend to be in the operating room. And it's to the point where sometimes their personalities are such that they have a difficult time working with other people. And when you think about it, that's probably what you want in a surgeon. You don't want a surgeon inside your body with a scalpel who's, who's looking down and going, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I don't really have faith in the training that I have that this is all going to work out. I'm not sure the book I read. Like, like, you don't want that. You want that surgeon to have faith and confidence that they have what it takes to make you well. Faith is confidence in what we hope for. And it's assurance about what we do not see. And I share all of that because it's confidence that we see slipping away from King Saul at this moment in the story as he's losing his faith. And, and it's a simple truth, not just for Saul, but it's a truth for all of us, that the deeper that we fall away from God, the more defensive and the more protective we get with the people around us. Let me say this again. The deeper that we fall away from faith in God, 
the more defensive and protective that we get with people around us. And that's what we see happening here with Saul. As King Saul begins to lose his faith in God, at the very same time, David begins to grow in his faith and he begins to come into his own. I mean, David is the one, you remember the story, right? He's the one that killed the Philistine Goliath that nobody else could kill. And he did it with a slingshot and a smooth stone. And so you could imagine that people really started to like David. God even told David through the prophet Samuel that eventually he would become the next king. Samuel called out Saul for being unfaithful, losing his faith in God and disobeying what God had called him to do. And if that wasn't bad enough, David and Saul's son Jonathan became good friends. And Jonathan even made it clear that he would follow David over his own father. And so what does a guy like Saul do? He's losing his faith. He's losing his son. He's losing his power. There's this young whippersnapper, David, who's rising up the ranks that people want to be the next king. Well, Saul ends up doing what any, any person without faith would do. If he doesn't trust that God's will is going to be done, he decides he's got to take out this threat. He decides he's going to kill David. And that's where we are in our reading today in 1 Samuel 24. Let me, let me read to you the first few verses again that we read just a few minutes ago. After David returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is, I'm sorry, after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able-bodied young men from all of Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. If he's not trying to make a statement in this, I don't know what is. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. Now, you might have been reading that and going, is that what I think it means? It is what you think it means. Saul is pursuing David. He's got this huge army of 3,000 men, and he goes into a cave to relieve himself. They didn't have outhouses back then. A cave seems like a logical place to do that. And lo and behold, in the very same cave, David and his men are in the back. Can you think of a better more compromising opportunity for David to turn things around and take over Saul. And the guys with David get excited for this opportunity that they have to get some revenge. Verse 4, the men said to David, this is the day that the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unannounced and cut off a corner of Saul's Wrote. David got so close to Saul while he's in the cave relieving himself that he cut off a piece of fabric from his shirt and he didn't even know. Now, this detail is significant because it suggests that David had a weapon. He had a knife that was so sharp that he could cut through cloth and he didn't even feel it. And if he could cut through cloth that way, can you imagine just how quickly he could have taken his entire life with that same weapon. But David didn't. 
Verse 5, afterwards David was conscience-stricken for even having just cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or to lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. At this point in the story, Saul is still king. And David knows that even though Saul has done so much to harm him, God gets to decide, not David, not anybody else, who is king. And even though David has been told that eventually he will become king, his faith is that God's timing will be perfect. And so he tells his people, we're not going to take matters into our own hands. Don't touch Saul. Saul leaves the cave, and David follows after Saul, and he follows after him with the one weapon that Saul does not have, and it makes all the difference. He follows him with faith. Instead of sneaking up on him, verse 8, David went out of the cave and he called right out to Saul. He said, my Lord, my king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Remember, Saul's got 3,000 men at his disposal. And David just falls down flat on his face. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? See, David had faith in God's perfect timing. He did not want to kill Saul on his own. But see, when you stop living life in faith and trusting that God is going to take care of you, suddenly everything around you begins to feel like a threat. And all of a sudden, that's what it felt like for Saul. Saul felt like threats were everywhere, and threat number one was David himself. And David knew that this wasn't true. He wasn't trying to kill Saul But Saul couldn't see that because he didn't have faith in God. Verse 10, David continues, This this day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at the piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off a corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down and trying to take my life. In this conflict between David and Saul, David has done what takes infinitely more strength and more guts and more muscle and faith than if David were to have killed Saul back in the cave. By comparison, killing Saul in the cave while he was relieving himself would have been the easier thing to do. And I point that out because oftentimes we think that when we don't seek revenge at those who have wronged us or wronged our loved ones, that somehow that makes us the weaker one. That's why I told you the story at the very beginning, and I wanted to tell you as part of that story that, that I punched the guy in the nose. Because I don't want you to think that I'm weaker. I don't want you to think that I'm a wimp. And yet knocking the guy in the nose would have been the easier thing to do. You look back at David, to to lay before the king 
who had unleashed an army of 3,000 people to kill him, to lay down in front of him and to lay down your weapons was, was infinitely more faith-filled than anything that Saul had ever done and ever will do. Now, now, David did not always operate out of this level of faith, but in this moment, he's spot on. And it's not because he's mightier than Saul, but it's because he has faith that comes from a place beyond himself. He believes in God. When we take matters into our own hands in conflict with somebody who's hurt us, what we're doing in that moment is we're basically saying to God, God, I don't trust you to do what only you can do. That's what we're saying to God. Verse 12, David continues by saying this. He says, May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs that you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. Notice here that David acknowledges to Saul and to himself that it's God who is ultimately in control. It's God who is in control. And the same is true for you and me when we find ourselves in conflict with someone else who seeks to harm and to hurt us. And I have to say this, I have to be very clear. If you are a victim of someone who has harmed you, like Saul is harming David, if you have been abused, be it physically or mentally or spiritually or any other way, none of this is suggesting to anyone, especially people of God, that we should continue to place ourselves in a position to get hurt. If I had time, I would read to you the rest of the story of Saul and David, and I would show you just how many times, what great lengths David would go to protect himself, to run away from Saul, to make sure that he remains in a safe Place And we need to do the same thing. And we need to do the same thing by protecting each other and being with one another to find safe places from places and people who harm us. A lot of times people of faith believe that, that when we read the Bible, we somehow get this idea that we're called to forgive and forget. And I'll tell you, I've read through the whole Bible and those two words don't come together in this book. Forgiveness, yes. But the reality is on this side of eternity, people hurt us in such terrible ways that we never forget. And not forgetting does not make you and me a bad person. The line of faith that's drawn in the sand for us is more for our own good than it is for anybody else. And that is that we may want in the pit of our stomach, not only to not forget, but to go and to seek revenge and go against the people that have harmed us and try to make it right by our own might. This is why I wanted to tell you that when this guy came to me and put the hot sauce in my eyes, that I, that I punched him in the face, that I took it into my own hands and I didn't. And it wasn't because I had that deep faith I think I just didn't want to get in trouble. But we have a desire inside of us that we think we're supposed to take those things into our own hands. But here's the truth that we learn from Scripture and from faith. That is that revenge never leads to relief. Revenge never leads to relief. Faith does. Faith in a God who says there is a right and a wrong. 
Faith in a God that says, in the end, rights will prevail. Rights will win. This is why the author of Proverbs says in Proverbs 20, do not say, I will pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord. He will avenge you. And I can't think of a better example of this played out than in the life of Jesus himself. In the garden where he would be arrested for crimes he never committed, Judas, the one who betrayed him, would bring an army of religious leaders. And Jesus would say in Matthew 26, do what you came for, friend. And the men stepped forward and they seized Jesus and they arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached out for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think that I cannot call on my father and at once he will put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled? that say that it must happen in this way. The scriptures proclaimed that in this battle that Jesus is facing with death itself, he may lose the battle temporarily by losing his life, but it was meant so that God could win the war, that they could kill his body but that he would rise again so that you and I would know in whatever we face, we will too. And so what I want to do right now is I want to invite you to join me as we come before God with our hurts and our pain, the moments and the people that we need to forget or forgive even if we can't forget. Let us bring those things before the Lord right now. Lord Jesus The psalmist writes in Psalm 46 that you are our refuge and strength, that you are an ever-present help in trouble. To have faith in the midst of conflict is not to ignore the conflict itself, but it is to be reminded that you are with us. Help us to put our faith in you like David did. Help us to have faith that you will protect us from our enemies, that you will protect us when we are running away. And help us to have faith that that you will be the one to bring justice to every wrong that is ever faced in this world and that you will make it right in you.